Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Exodus 17 is where we're going to be at uh, tonight, and so if you can go ahead and make your way and turn there, we'll read our text in just a few moments, but I want to bring you up to speed where we're at uh, in our study through the book of Exodus, and Pastor, he's been working his way through, and I've thoroughly enjoyed our time in it. Uh, so far, but we're coming right off the miracle of, of God raining down bread from heaven, and one reoccurring theme that we've learned about the children of Israel is that they like to complain. All right, for three consecutive chapters now, they have complained. Chapter 15, God, He's delivered the children of Israel out of captivity from Egypt. Uh, they've witnessed the plagues. They've seen God bring them out. God's parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry, on dry ground. And when all the children of Israel were safely across, God closed the walls down and the Egyptian army was drowned. What a miracle. And they begin to rejoice and they sing songs. Exodus 15, verse 21, it says, Sing ye to the Lord, for He triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And he says, they're singing these songs saying, God, he's triumphed gloriously. He's given us a, a great victory. And then the next verse it says, in verse 22, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. So they go off this great miracle. They're now in the wilderness for three days, and now adversity has arrived. And they, they find no water, and then they come tomorrow where they find some water, and when they drink it, it's really bitter. And they say, we can't drink this water because of its bitterness. And then the complaining starts. And we're going to see this trend now for the next few chapters. And God, He performs another miracle where He, he tells uh, Moses to cast the branch into the water, and the waters were made sweet for them to drink. And then they travel on to Elam where they find twelve wells of water and ten palm trees. And the Lord blesses them again. It's time for them to journey on. So the children of Israel now journey to the wilderness of sin that's between Elam and Sinai, and they start to complain again. And if you look at uh, chapter 16, just a chapter back in verses 2 and 3, it says, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Would to God we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth in the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Wow. You're gonna, God has just blessed you, and now you're going to say God's only brought you into the wilderness to kill you. You know, they talk about how you had uh, uh, as much meat as you wanted to eat, bread to the fill, and now you're going to complain. And the Lord decides them, even through all this complaining, to bless them again, and he rains down bread from heaven. In chapter 16, verse number 12, he says, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At evening you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And they had been given water, and now they had food, and it's time to journey on again. And that's where chapter 17 picks up. They had started their journey from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim. That's where they find themselves at now. And when they arrive at Rephidim, guess what? No water. And more complaining. And God has continually proved Himself over and over again. He's provided for the children of Israel over and over again, but they still find something to complain about. So if you found your text this evening in Exodus chapter 17, if you're willing and able to, will you stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word? And we'll read all of chapter 17 together and then we'll get into the message. 
And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses. This means they, they scold him. They scolded him and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, and take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek and fought with, the, with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose you out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek with his people with the edge of the sword. The Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this evening. Thank you once again for the chance that we have to gather together and open your word and learn from it. Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I preach now. Fill me with your spirit and use me. Pray that we'd have open hearts ready to hear from you tonight and help us to leave more like you. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Have you ever seen a movie that is super predictable? Like before the movie even begins, you know what's going to happen? That's kind of how I feel about Hallmark movies. By many women's standards, I would probably be categorized as a bad husband because I refuse to watch them, but I've heard enough stories to know what they're like. My dad, he's always been a, a role model growing up in my life, but I'm beginning to look for other role models because as of recently, he's been sucked into the trap of enjoying Hallmark movies with my mom and Ashley. He can tell you everything that's recently happened on that show, When Calls the Heart. It's super disappointing, so I'm looking for new role models at this time. But all these Hallmark movies are the same, super predictable. Guy is in love with a girl. She's engaged to some loser. Most of the time he's rich. And the whole movie leads to her calling off the engagement and marrying the guy who's been in love with her all along. And normally, somebody dies halfway through the movie that's related to the family of some sort. So... Hallmark movies in a nutshell, if you've never seen one, there you go. That's the, that's the synopsis of each Hallmark movie. I'll save you some pain and heartache, uh, but if you're a man and you enjoy Hallmark movies, I'm really disappointed in you. <laughs> but in many ways, the story of the children of Israel has become quite predictable. 
They complain. Moses goes to God. God provides. Three consecutive chapters in a row. Complain. Moses goes to God. God provides. So I want to look at verses 2 and 3 real quick, and I want you to see the complaint of the children of Israel. It says, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Israel had a long ways to go before they would qualify as a godly nation. So far, every trial that they have experienced has brought out the worst in them. When they arrived at Rephidim, they find themselves without water again. This is not something that's new to them. Uh, but their complaint is, we're thirsty and we have no water. It's a very legitimate need. They have no water. They're thirsty. We all need water to survive. Some of you would say, I don't need water. I just need my coffee or I need my tea, Mountain Dew, etc., whatever it may be. But remember, they had failed this test already once in chapter 15. So God is putting them to the test again. And God has already proved to them that he's able to provide water and food for them. So what's the problem? Why are they messing up time and time again? Their problem is they're ungrateful and they're filled with unbelief. They want to go back to their old life. In multiple occasions, they, they're continually talking about Egypt and how, how, how so much better it was for them there. They're saying the, the only reason God has called us out of Egypt is to take us into the wilderness to kill us. And they have failed the test again. And as you read through Exodus, it's really hard to like the children of Israel. Mistake after mistake, failure after failure, and it's so frustrating. But it kind of sounds like us sometimes. Failure after failure. Mistake after mistake. Complaint after complaint. And it's frustrating to us as we, as we read through the story. It's frustrating as a reader, but can you imagine how frustrating it was to Moses, their leader? That at every single sign of adversity, they complain and say, God's just trying to kill us. And we see Moses as his response. We see the complaint of the children of Israel, but I want you to see the comeback from Moses. In verses 2 through 4, he says, Why chide ye with me? Where, wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for water, and they murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is it that thou hast brought us out to Egypt, essentially to kill us of thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. I feel really bad for Moses here. He had to listen to all this whining. He had to listen to all this complaining, which probably felt like nonstop for him. It just seemed like it's the consistent part of life. It's like, okay, the sun's up. Here they come. They're about to complain. But he says, when they, when they complain, we, we don't have any water, his response is, don't blame me. Like, why, why chide with me? Why are you scolding me? Why are you rebuking me? How was I supposed to know that there wasn't uh, going to be any water here when I got here? He, he says, why do you tempt God? Why are you so full of unbelief? And this leads into the point where he cries out to God, and it's important to note that it was the presence of the Lord that gave Moses the strength and confidence that he needed as he led the children of Israel through these wilderness wanderings. And there were times when he as an individual lacked confidence in himself, though. But in our passage, we find Moses doing what he frequently does. 
taking his problems straight to God. And what an example he is for us, the believers, when adversity comes, when difficulty comes, we can go straight to God with our problems. It's, great to, it's a great to model after him. And I want to talk about that, and that example for a minute. So what do we do when a problem comes our way? Are you tempted to, to dwell on that problem and try and solve it yourself? Moses easily could have done that. Moses could have said, you know what? We don't have any water, but we did just leave a place that had wells and ten palm trees. You know, it's pretty nice in Elam. Let's go back and get water there. He could have tried to solve it that way. Maybe he was tempted to complain. Maybe like we're tempted to complain to our best friend. We go to them and say, yeah, I got no water. They want to stone me. You know, what should I do? I can see Moses, he pulls out his brand new iPhone and he starts tweeting. He says, they got the stones out, I better go hide now. But do we run everywhere except to God? I know I'm guilty of doing that from time to time. There have been times when I've got on the phone and I've called my dad or I've, I've talked to Ashley about a problem that I was having without ever even going to God. Oh, you know, work is so bad. I can't believe that they forgot to give me this. The kids are just driving me up the wall. And Moses, like a man of God, takes his problem straight to God and says, what am I supposed to do? They want to stone me. They think, they think it's my fault. And what a tough place for him to be in. You should note that when people are out of fellowship with God, and they're angry and they're bitter, they usually want to do some very unreasonable things. We got no water. Let's kill our leader. What in the world? You have no water, so you want to kill Moses? Like, what is going through your mind? Great idea, children of Israel. That's the best idea that you've had in the whole book of Exodus. And that's why we as, as Christians shouldn't be surprised when good people really do some dumb things sometimes because it's a good indicator that they've been out of fellowship with God, that their relationship with God, that there's something going on between them. And, and it's a good indicator that it just shows us that, you know, sometimes people do some dumb things when they're not right with God. And so we see Moses, he, he goes to God, he, the comeback, he, he responds with them. He's saying, this is not my fault. And he responds by going to God and pleading on behalf of them. But then we see in verses 5 through 7, the command that God gives to Moses. In verses 5, he says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, and take in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God hears Moses' prayer, and he gives him a couple of instructions. And aren't you thankful that God hears our prayers when we need Him? The very same God that answered the prayers for Moses answers our prayers. And God says, I want you to go before the people, take the elders with you, take your rod with you, and I'll stand before you. you just, all you got to do is smite the rock, and water will come out. Seems simple enough, right? That's all you got to do. And I like the end of verse 6. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And when God tells you to do something, you should do it. With obedience comes blessing, and God, He's not going to honor disobedience. You'll find that truth all throughout Scripture. And so what you got taking place here is I, I found me a, uh, a rod that we'll use for our illustration tonight. I don't have a rock that I'm going to hit, 
because uh, I don't think I can make water come out of it. Uh, but we'll use this as an illustration. We, could make, we might could use that as our rock. But all God says, all I want you to do is I just want you to come over here in the sight of the children of Israel and I just want you to smack it. And that's what Moses does. He just walks up, hits the rock, they have water. And you think everything's going to go great from here, don't you? No. God has successfully come through for Israel. But in verse 7, I find something very interesting. It says, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word Massa, it means to test. And the word Meribah means contention and quarreling. And the children of Israel still hadn't learned that God tests His people in the everyday experiences of life. God will use difficult experiences in life to strengthen our faith and mature our character. But the children of Israel's faith in God at this time was very weak. They thought that God was leading them to places where He couldn't take care of them. And they literally said, is the Lord among us or not? And their real problem was that they had hard hearts and wanted to do what they wanted to do, so they rebelled. And in fact, the older generation of the Israelites, they were so filled with unbelief that throughout their entire journey from out of Egypt to the promised land that they didn't even get to see the promised land because of their unbelief. But before you and I are too quick to judge, how many times have we had that same thought? Maybe not in a scolding connotation, but we've said, is God even there? Does God even care about me? Why has God led me to this circumstance? Because it just feels like I'm going to be destroyed. And if we were to map out our lives, if we were to map out our journey with Jesus Christ, how many places would be named Massa and Meribah? Because of the way that we've complained about our circumstances and the way that we have failed to trust our God. It's one thing for us to sit in a church and say, all the way my Savior lead me, leads me, but what have I to ask beside? But it's a whole other thing when you're going through distress and difficulty and disappointment and be able to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. So to, to recap, the children of Israel, they messed up again. God has tested them and they have failed, but he provides them with water anyways. And then verse 8 comes around. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. So they're at the same place where they needed the water. God's, God told Moses to, to smack the rock they get the water, but they haven't journeyed anywhere else yet. They're still in Rephidim. And so they get to Rephidim, and they had one adversity, no water. And now guess what? Amalek's there, and they want to destroy them. And so I want you to see in verses 8 through 13, we're going to look at the, the battle with Amalek. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out. Fight with Amalek, and tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill uh, with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek, and Moses and Aaron Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him. He sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on one side, the other on the other side. His hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So who were the Amalekites anyways? We find out who they are in Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36, 
reveals us who the Amalekites are. And they were descendants of Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau. They were troublemakers. And they caused problems all the way up until King Hezekiah's reign. They caused problems for Saul. God tells Saul to go and to utterly destroy Amalek. Does he? No. He saves the best cattle because he said he's going to sacrifice them. And then he spares the king. He spares King Agag, the best of the cattle. And ultimately, because of this, this disobedience, Saul loses his hand of blessing from God. We're going to see David gets appointed king, but the problems doesn't stop with Saul. The Amalekites cause David's problem. He does a really good job of trying to get rid of them, but he doesn't get rid of all of them. And it's not until King Hezekiah's reign that all the Amalekites are killed. So for a long time, they're going to cause problems. But this is a new type of test for the children of Israel. Uh, as, they've, as they've gone through this journey, really it's only been things like food and water that they've struggled with. We don't have nothing to eat. We don't have anything to drink. But now, they're at war. There's no record that the Jews ever had to fight any battles in Egypt. But once they were delivered from bondage, they soon discovered that they had some enemies out there. And Moses, he meets with Joshua to get a plan together. And this is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible, but he'll be mentioned over 200 times following this battle. He's the, the general of the new Israeli army. And for me, this would have been a very nerve-wracking time. They had just been a few weeks, maybe just a few days, removed from the escape from Egypt, and now they're about to go into battle. And what would the outcome be? Think about the escape from Egypt. They didn't even fight them. God's the one who fought on their behalf, and He fought for them, and I would be super nervous. So here's what happens. Verse 8 rolls around. Amalek shows up, and now, like, uh-oh, adversity, more trouble. So Amalek's here. We have to fight them. So in verse 9, they're preparing for battle. Moses said, Joshua, pick you out some men. Get ready for battle. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go up on the hill with the rod of God in my hand tomorrow. In verses 10 and 11, you find that the battle begins to take place and Moses is interceding on behalf of the battle on Mount Horeb. And I, I like to think that I have a good imagination. And I wonder how long it took during this battle for Moses to realize that when his rod was up here, they were winning. When his rod was down here, they were losing. So I kind of imagine maybe Moses is like, So you can see the, the army's going back and forth. He throws his hands up like this, and Joshua, they're running towards the Amalekites, and he drops it, and next thing you know, Joshua's running back, and the Amalekites are running after him, and so maybe he's moving it up and down. I don't know how long it took him to realize that. Maybe God told him. I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe it says you've got to hold it up the entire time. But Moses got tired. He's going up, down, up, down. He's getting a workout this whole time. And after doing all this, he gets uh, tired. In verse 12, it says, But Moses' hands... We're heavy. So I thought about I thought about having Brother Derek come up here at the beginning of the service to hold this up here the entire time, but I felt bad for him since he got handcuffed to Brother Raphael and was getting snatched around everywhere in the morning service. So we'll, we'll give him a break uh, tonight. But anyways, Aaron and her soon realized that Moses needs some help. 
Moses has been holding this rod up for so long that it's beginning to fall. I mean, I know this is a pretty light, you know, stick, and you know, you can throw it around and stuff. But if you're just standing there all day like this, you're going to get tired. It's not so much the rod that's causing the weight, it's just my, my arms. And so, like, it's like, ugh, ugh. finally, finally, uh, Aaron and her are like, hey, we got to help Moses out. So they get him a seat, and then they hold his hands up, and the Bible says that his hands remain steady until the going down of the sun. So I guess he, man, we ain't got chairs up here anymore. I forgot about that. And so I, I, I totally forgot that we didn't have the four chairs up here. So he sits down in his seat until the going down of the sun. His arms are sure. They're steady. Verse 13. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of a sword. So here we have Moses interceding once again on behalf of the children of Israel. And Aaron and Hur were helping Moses to intercede. And this was a heavy load that Moses was carrying. And he had some faithful individuals who came up alongside of him to help him when times got a little bit difficult. And just to put some personal application in here, in regards to our leader, our pastor carries a very heavy load of leading our church interceding on our behalf, praying for our needs. And sometimes he needs someone to come alongside of him and, and encourage him. There's so much more to pastoring than just preaching three times a week. He needs our prayers. He needs our support because I can promise you this. He prays for each and every one of you. And he intercedes on our behalf. And we just need to come up sometimes and, and lift his arms up for him and encourage him. But back to our text, verse 13. Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. They win. Joshua and the army defeats the Amalekites. And the victory is from God in verses 13 and 14. In verse 14 it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, All right, This victory, write this for a memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out remembrance from Amalek from under heaven. Israel's great victory over Amalek involved three different elements. We see the power of God in heaven working on their behalf. We see the skill of Joshua on the battlefield, but we also see the intercession of Moses, Aaron, and Hur, you know, pleading on behalf of the children of Israel for God to give them to victory. So our text here doesn't say that Moses was praying. And some commentators don't think that he was. But to me, this just doesn't seem very logical. It doesn't make sense that Moses wasn't praying. Because when adversity has come to Moses and the children of Israel, what has he done every single time? He has always gone to God in prayer when adversity has come his way. And I have a hard time believing that Moses was just up on the mountain with a rod up in the air waiting for them to win just doesn't make sense. So I, I believe that he was getting so tired because he was interceding so much on behalf of the children of Israel. So Joshua and his army would trust God and fight. Moses, Aaron, and Hur would trust God and intercede. And God would do the rest. In this way, God's people would grow in faith and God's name would 
will be glorified. So that leads us to our last point tonight. Verses 15 and 16. The praise of the children of Israel. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So God, he tells Moses to, to write this story down in the history books. And I want you to put a future event there. And, and, and that future event is that Amalek will be completely destroyed. And the Bible does teach us that Amalek is completely destroyed during the reign of King Hezekiah. And God always delivers on his promises. After Moses writes it down, he, he builds there an altar and he calls it Jehovah Nisi, which means God is my banner. And after this battle, Moses, he didn't build a monument to himself or to Joshua. He didn't build a banner to the army of Israel for this great victory, but rather he was careful to give all the glory to God. He said, God is my banner. God is the one who gave us the victory. A banner is something that identifies or, or unifies a particular group of people. For example, a military flag or standard is sometimes called a banner. So the Israelites saying the Lord is my banner was a way of identifying themselves as unified followers of God. It's a very simple truth to think about. God had answered prayer and helped his people, and now Moses wanted to praise him. This is a guideline that we should follow as well. To know that God hears our prayers, He helps us, and He is worthy of our praise. And overall, chapter 17, it, it seems kind of rough. It starts off pretty bad. It starts off with the children of Israel complaining again, but it ends with the children of saying, we are unified. God is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. We go from complaining to praise. And going into tonight as we conclude now, the story of the children of Israel has been pretty predictable. They complained. Moses prayed. God provided. Adversity comes back. Moses prayed. God took care of them. And I wish so badly, it's like that irritating thing as the reader, I just wish so badly that the children of Israel could finally get it. That it doesn't matter what you face, God is going to take care of you. He has proven Himself faithful. He has proven Himself tried and true and tested. And that He will provide your every need if you will just obey Him. In three chapters, they still haven't got it yet. And that's the truth that I want you to take home tonight. God will take care of you. God will provide for you and meet your every single need. And when difficulties come and distress comes and despair comes and you just seem overwhelmed with every circumstance that is around you, God will take care of you. And yes, we can be like the children of Israel from time to time and we can be stubborn and we can fail our tests from time to time, but God is loving and God is patient and He loves us with an infinite love. And no matter what your circumstance is, no matter what situation you're in, God will take care of you. It doesn't matter how hard it may seem. God is there and He's listening 
And He's working on your behalf. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God will always be there to help you. Let's pray.